Whoa! 
stand this morning singing a song, Christ is enough, He's enough for all your needs in this place. Hallelujah. Yeah. 
Today we glorify your name. You are worthy, O oh God, to be exalted. We love you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for the day of my conversion. Lord, I thank you for such a great salvation, Lord God. Your forgiveness of sin, Lord, I thank you for the blood shed for all of our iniquities, O oh Lord. For you have done such great things, O oh God, in our midst. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Amen. We're so grateful today. Uh, and that doesn't mean that everything's going perfectly in your life, but God is good. And he does have everything under control, and you're in safe and good hands when you make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. So we want to open our service in prayer. Uh, we want to go before the Lord and believe God for his grace over our services this morning and tonight. Uh, we'll be meeting again this evening at 630, and we're praying for a great outpouring of God's grace and favor. We want to pray for revival in our city, in our nation. This is the great need of the hour. We want to remember to pray for President Donald Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, all of our elected and appointed officials and leaders and judges all around the country. We're praying for an atmosphere where God's grace can be extended. We want to pray for uh, revival among military personnel all around the world in every base all over uh, the country and all around the world here in El Paso, of course, and all of our military personnel that attend our church. And we are especially praying for revival on Fort Bliss. Uh, let's remember uh, Pastor Mitchell, uh, Pastor Greg and Lisa Mitchell, Pastor Harold and Mona Warner, and we want to remember some of our outreach pastors. They've had uh, a lot of flooding and problems in Houston, and they're now recovering from that. So we want to pray for Robert and Angie Correa, uh, Bob and Angie McCullough, uh, both of them in Houston. Mike and Liza Major in South Central Los Angeles, Caleb and Brenda Melendez uh, in Juarez, and of course all of our missionaries all around the world from China to Africa, from Bolivia to Canada. We're praying for the hand of God's grace to move powerfully. We want to remember uh, for salvation, Angel Gonzalez, um, uh, Ashley uh, Trejo, Zachary Flores, Ashley Morales, Freddie Castro, the Ventura, Marcus and Ransdell families, Jaylen Ashley, Gabby Castaneda, Rebecca Lara, Michael Cordova, Erica Davis, Natalie Arvia, Maria Martinez, Carlos and Alex Aguirre, and Joe Lopez. These are all people we're praying for for salvation. We continue to pray for Mary Reyna, Sylvia Martinez for healing, Nancy Singlin, Sally Ruby, Kathy Benavente, Angie Sanchez, Tori Ruby, Priscilla Vega. Those are all people that are praying for healing. And Edward Saucedo, Art Chavez, Blanca Ruiz. Jonathan Warren, Dominic Perez, Letty Treviso, uh, Alex and Victoria Rodriguez, those are, uh, and the 
Gerardo family, those are all people we're praying for, for special needs in their life. I really do especially want to pray for our service this morning and tonight. God has great things in store uh, for all of us. And when we come to church, we need to be ready, prepared to hear, to open our hearts, to answer the altar call, to repent. Coming to church is not just throwing clothes on or putting on makeup and making yourself presentable and then attending Touching base with a few people, but we're here to meet with God. And whenever you meet with God, He changes lives, and I'm contending for that. And I am praying for special anointing uh, related to the sermons that I want to minister uh, this morning and tonight. So let's do that. We want to lift up all these needs. You pray for one another, pray for the services, pray for your own needs. And then as we subside, Carlos uh, is going to come and open our service in prayer. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you for the power to save, to heal, and to deliver. I thank you for the blood of Jesus that was shed for all of our sins, Lord. For you have broken the power of every curse, and you have delivered and redeemed us, O Lord. Father, we lift your name on high in this place. God, we know that you are greater than all the circumstances and turmoil before us, Lord. Father, we know, God, that you can overcome, God, in our lives. God, that you can break the chains of bondage and sin, God. Lord, we ask you for our family members, our friends. God, and our co-workers, our peers, Lord, Father, that you would till their hearts, God, Lord, that you would prepare their hearts for revival, for salvation, God, Lord, that you would anoint the lips of our pastor this morning, Lord, bring a special anointing, God, we ask that you would bring your word, God, into our hearts, God, and we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Praise God. Take a moment to greet and welcome one another as you're being seated today. Amen. All right. As we're getting seated, we are so very, very uh, happy, glad, and rejoicing to be gathered together today. We're going to have a great, fantastic uh, morning, and uh, I'm having a great vision of God moving powerfully, giving you something that will change your life this morning and tonight, and keep you on the right course if you're already on it, put you on the right course if you have deviated. Uh, and tonight the same. Tonight's message is entitled, Tell Someone About Jesus, from Mark chapter 5, The Conversion of the Gadarene. And uh, it's a very simple message, but it is the hallmark of our fellowship, and it will challenge you, and I want to encourage you to come uh, to the service tonight. It starts at 6.30. We have prayer meeting at 5.30. And we uh, ask you, I ask you to bring people that need Jesus, do some Phone calls and follow-up, uh, it's urgent that people get into church, get saved, get established. So uh, that's uh, what's happening today. Uh, we want to continue with our announcements. Well, first of all, let's welcome everybody. If you're visiting, uh, perhaps here for the first time, amen. We want to welcome you uh, along with all the faithful saints that are gathered together here with us. I was getting ahead of myself there. Uh, we want to uh, mention... Um, uh, also, tomorrow we have a special discipleship class with Pastor Joe Campbell uh, from our leadership church in Chandler in the Phoenix area. Uh, he is a powerful preacher, one of the very best preachers in our fellowship, and he always brings a timely word of God. That will be at 7.30 tomorrow night. Our churches from the area will be coming, 
And uh, again, we always have a great time. This is for men, young, middle-aged, old men, whatever your age, whatever your station. And the objective is discipleship, to help you be a better man, a better leader, a better father, a better single man, whatever your position is in life. And then on Tuesday, we have women's prayer meeting at 6.30 at night in the evening here at the church. There's also a prayer meeting at Wally and Suzette's home. Uh, I think it's at the same time, uh, 6.30 on Tuesday evening, and that's for men and women, and you can attend that uh, if you feel so inspired. Wednesday, we have our regular midweek service, and that's going to be a farewell uh, service for Herman and Violetta. Uh, and uh, their daughter are going to be going off on Thursday to Bogota, Colombia, on a great adventure for God to take over that church. And then uh, Richard and Luz Contreras will be staying there with them for one week, and then uh, they'll be coming back a week from this Thursday on October 3rd, uh, so we're looking forward to welcoming them. Uh, this coming uh, Thursday, so I'm assuming there'll be a food fellowship for that. We can give more details about that uh, later, but it'll be farewell service Wednesday night. Uh, then Thursday will be Spanish service at 7 p.m. Uh, Friday, our youth uh, ministry uh, we'll be going out along with the rest of the church on another fall festival outreach. We had a great turnout, so keep coming to the outreach. Uh, and if you're going to pick one to go to, uh, be decisive about that and come out this coming Friday. They meet here uh, at the church at uh, 6.45 uh, and then go out uh, for outreach for the fall festival. And then Saturday will be a regular schedule of prayer outreach and the edge here at the church. Uh, every year we do a candy drive for the fall festival, so you can bring that uh, and take it to the usher's office. There'll be a water baptism next uh, Sunday uh, after the morning service. If you've given your life to Christ recently, a number of you have, uh, you need to go on and live for God, and part of that is being baptized in water, which is a sim- symbol of leaving the old life behind, burying the old life, and rising up in newness of life. So it's a very important step of obedience, and we all join you in celebrating that. So that'll be next Sunday. If you need to be baptized, please see Pastor Ernie uh, about that. And then the prayer meeting at Wally's house is at 7. Wally and Suzette's house is from 7 to 8 p.m., uh, and the address is right near the church here, just on the other side of the freeway, but the address is uh, posted in the foyer. Amen. Let's have the ushers come. Uh, we want to uh, take time to give and worship uh, God with our wealth, our finances, our resources. We believe that God, and the Bible is very clear, that God wants to bless people. There's no virtue in poverty or being poor. In fact, it's a curse because God created the earth with abundance, with plenty. It never runs out of water, never runs out of land where crops can grow. Uh, That's how God made it. It's a very small planet in terms of the size of the universe, but it furnishes us with abundance. And that's the God that we serve. He is a God of abundance. If you're frustrated about how much money you're earning right now, how many sales you've been getting, God can do more, and you could pray, and your financial life and your financial world can uh, be blessed of God by wise investment, maybe going back to school, educating yourself, 
in some way that will give you a higher paying job. God expects us to do that, and I'm going somewhere with this, uh, because when I pray for God to bless the church with money, I don't pray for that. I pray for God to bless you with money. So then you can give, be connected uh, with the church in furnishing the resources and the finances. And if that's your objective, I believe God will always bless you. And we are in covenant relationship together. The men and women that we have pioneering churches all over the world are connected with us. That's why we believe in covenant bonds of relationship that we do not break. We do not violate those. We maintain our faithful church attendance. We maintain our financial obligations to support our missionaries. What if the church was like the rest of the religious world and just scattered every once in a while uh, on a whim or for whatever reason? But we believe in covenant bonds of relationship. That's what furnishes the ability to send out churches uh, and to furnish the world with workers. So I want to challenge you with that. Pray for financial blessing and increase for yourself so that you can give uh, to a greater degree to the house of God. But for today's offering, we're going to give and sacrifice in obedience. We recently renewed our world evangelism pledges, so give that. Uh, Tithes and offerings, give those. And perhaps a very special offering besides all that that you just feel in an impulse to give and bless the kingdom, uh, this would be a good time to do that. So let's uh, uh, bow our heads. We're going to pray, and I'm going to ask if Chris would pray and ask the Lord to bless gift and giver. Amen. One other announcement. There will be a baby shower for Sonia Medina uh, this coming Friday at 6.30 p.m. at Edith Ponce's house. So uh, go there and bless her. And then tonight, uh, as part of the service, we're renewing uh, the wedding vows of Mr. and Mrs. Arieno. Uh, this is Sarah's parents. And uh, we're going to be doing that this evening, so we're looking forward to that as well. Amen. Let's sing and worship God. Hallelujah. God is so good. We're looking forward again to a a great day today. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7. You can turn there, and then uh, we will also have the Scriptures up on the screen. We're going to read as well, but you don't have to turn there from Exodus chapter 34. 
I have uh, been praying about when to preach this sermon, and I believe that today is the right time. This is a sermon that has to be preached from time to time. I would be neglecting my responsibility as a pastor if I didn't lay out the truth of this sermon from time to time for the purpose of confronting you with it, creating a forum where God can deal with your heart and hopefully bring necessary repentance, change, and transformation. Now, I have to admit I am getting a little bit ahead of myself. I'm going to be teaching a Sunday school after I'm finished with this one in a few weeks entitled Countdown to Judgment. That was initially going to be just one sermon that I was going to preach, but as I began to uh, pray and study, uh, there's so much material uh, involved in revelation and truth uh, uh, that I am going to teach a Sunday school probably beginning the, uh, in November. Now, my inspiration for this and for this sermon this morning And I'm not trying to be theatrical or overly dramatic. My inspiration is this. If we are serious about life and death, if we appreciate that we're going to be here like a vapor here today, gone tomorrow, and then eternity, if we're serious about that, if we're serious about the Word of God and prophecy, And what the Bible says about the times in which we live, that we are living in the times of the imminency of Jesus Christ's return and of the end of the age. And if you are serious about the will of God in your life, living this life for the purpose that this life was given you, and that is to obey God and glorify Him and if you are serious and aware and cognizant of the very certain and coming judgment of God, we are serious about all that, then I have a very serious responsibility. I have to prepare you for that. That is to assist you in preparing for this judgment And in order to do that, I have to make it real enough to you so that it affects how you're living your life today because too many Christians are living very careless lives. And the fact of the matter is that we're not all ready to stand before God and give an account and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So what I'm praying for today is sufficient anointing to that end, that this can be made real enough so that you will be as thoroughly right with God as possible when that great day comes. The objective would be to minister this with sufficient anointing so as to alter and change how you're currently going about living your life. Because it has to be said, this sermon has to be preached. And it has to be said that we're not already. From a biblical, revelatory statement, we're not already. But the good news is that we can be ready. We can get ready. 
We can be thoroughly prepared and as right with God as we possibly can be. That's what he expects. He expects you not to show up on Judgment Day with excuses, with rationale for rebellion and disobedience, but he expects us to stand before God, having been made as thoroughly right with him as we can be. So I'm going to preach this sermon in that context, and a few others that I plan on preaching through the month of October in the run-up to teaching the Sunday school, the countdown to judgment. Now, sometimes we just don't realize what is happening to us and what has happened to us internally. We all change one way or the other. We change slowly in most cases, incrementally over time, and we don't recognize the changes that are taking place. It's called change and adjust. We're this way, a slight change, and then we adjust to that. And we don't feel much different than we were when we were this way. But we've altered a little bit, we've adjusted Change a little more, adjust, change, adjust, change, adjust, change, adjust. Pretty soon we're way over here, but we don't think we're any different than we were when we were back there. Because it's a psychological and emotional and physiological dynamic that changes, uh, that uh, takes place uh, as we are all changed uh, in one direction or another throughout the course of our lives. Of course, that can have a very good and positive application. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, you may not think that you look very much like Jesus today, but you sure look a a lot more like Him than you did before you got saved and on the day of your conversion and in the immediate aftermath of your conversion. Why? Because it's change and adjust and change and adjust. Sermon after sermon, altar call after altar call, opportunity to repent after opportunity to repent, and we change and we transform. Sometimes we don't feel like we're a lot different. Take my word for it, we are. The power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God in conjunction with His grace, works in us to transform our lives so that the end result is that we are like Him. We are in the process of becoming what we could never be on our own. Now, of course, the opposite of that is true as we're sitting here this morning. Because sin, compromise, disobedience, stubbornness and rebellion also changes people's lives. We're here, slight compromise and adjust. And then another and another and another. And then it's sin and disobedience that is being rationalized. And it's change and adjust and change and adjust. That's why we can come to church and raise our hands and sing the songs and give praise to God. Because it's happening slowly over time. And we don't realize that we have deteriorated and are in the process of deteriorating spiritually. Therefore, not ready to stand before God. 
This is the arena where both God works through the agency of the Holy Spirit to hopefully transform us into his image, but it is also the arena where Satan works through the agency of sin to bring slow, incremental change in your life to the point where you do not even realize that it has occurred. So let's read then Matthew 7, the very stunning, gripping words of Jesus. I want to ask no movement, please, during the course of this sermon. Again, I'm not trying to be theatrical, but if you get up to wander the halls uh, and then you come back, you're going to miss. I want you to really hear every syllable, every word, every sentence and paragraph of this sermon. Unless you're called out with an emergency Let's hold our place. Matthew 7, this is Jesus in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. I wasn't saying Lord, Lord before I got saved. So who's he talking about here? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. You can sit in church not doing the will of the Father. Many, not a few, not a minuscule number, but many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name. I never did that before I got saved, so he's obviously not talking about sinners there. And done many wonders in your name. And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a person who functions with an agenda outside the boundaries of God's counsel and law. Jesus goes on, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine, I never heard the sayings of Jesus before I got saved. So he's not talking to sinners here. He's talking to people who hear the word of God. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So let's examine this, because this is startling truth that needs to awaken us. This opening statement is quite shocking, and there are three components here that I want to draw your attention to. First of all, Jesus said, not everyone. Wait a minute. You're declaring Jesus Christ is Lord? And you're doing that because of revelation. You got a revelation that he is Lord. This is not just lip service. 
This is not just some sinner or religious person saying, Lord, Lord, without knowing what it means. These are people that know what it means. And Jesus is saying not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to make it to heaven. In Matthew 16, Jesus describes what it is that enables a person to call Jesus Lord. And Jesus said to them in verse 15 of Matthew 16, But who do you say that I am? He's asking his disciples. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, Because you are Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter is calling Jesus Lord because of revelation. That's who Jesus is addressing here. And Jesus is saying not everyone who declares Jesus is Lord by revelation shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Something can happen after that revelation that can cause you to miss heaven. Secondly, he said many. This is not some small, insignificant One or two people in a church of 500. This is not some insignificant minority, hardly any, or one in a million. That word many means plenteous, large, or abundant. It's not an insignificant few. There will be many who will say, Lord, Lord. And there it is again. Have we not prophesied? Have we not cast out? Have we not done many wonders? He's not talking about the junkie in the street or the sinner who's never known Christ. It's very evident who he's talking to here. And in the minds of the many, they are fully invested in doing the work of God, the will of God, and their attitude is, even on the day of judgment, they're going to be standing there expecting accolades and reward. That will be their expectation. And then Jesus says, I never knew you. It's one thing for a sinner. Never been in church, never known Christ, always rejected the gospel, never gave up their sin. Never got right with God, never repented, never received Jesus, never prayed a sinner's prayer, never set foot in a church. It would be, it's understandable. I don't know you. I never knew you. Is that what he's talking about? Never knew you. Really? The word means not even at any time, not at all. But didn't they call Jesus Lord? And then it's depart, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness is the word for iniquity that we're going to look at in a few moments. Now, this sounds very confusing. I remember reading the scriptures of a brand new convert. It horror terrified me. I had to go running to Pastor Warner to get help. <laughs> How does someone end up in that position? Three things are true about this text. Number one, you can be deceived about the condition of your heart. This is human rationalization. 
In the case of the above, not even standing before God on judgment day will be enough to open their eyes, at least not initially. Jesus is going to have to do some talking first. They're totally deceived about the true condition of their heart. It's one thing for a sinner to be opposite of God as far as the assessment of your life. I'm not really that bad of a person. And if he's going to send me to hell, I want to go to hell anyway because that's where all my friends are. You know how sinners talk. So it's easy for us to understand how an unbeliever or a sinner who's never had a revelation of Jesus, how they can be crosswise with God's assessment. But these in the text call Jesus Lord. They are not ignorant. This is not the sinner who has never known. This is not someone who has been blinded by godlessness. And, of course, this is not a standalone Verse, we read in the book of Revelation concerning a church in Laodicea, and it says in Revelation 3.17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And then verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He's writing that to a church that is deceived about the condition of their heart. You have to consider that self-deception is a very real possibility in our own lives when it comes to assessing our standing with God. And we have to be very careful that it doesn't happen. The second truth about this verse is that you can very badly misplay your hand. You think that your good works trump the true condition of your heart. But, oh, I, 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 I go to church. I'm in ministry. And you think somehow that overrides a pornography habit or sin or disobedience or rebellion that is going on in your heart. On Judgment Day... Many people are going to stand before God citing their good works. Jesus is there to determine the rightness of your heart, the forgiveness of your sins. But there will be some there that instead of only being able to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, for I was in sin and you set me free. Everything that I have and that I am is because of you. But there are going to be people that march quite confidently before the Lord on Judgment Day, and their first impulse is going to be, look at all we did for you, Lord. We worked, we labored, we prayed, we went on outreach, we gave. You can very badly... Misplace, misplay your hand. Somewhere along the line, your works became more important, or even your ministry became more important than being thoroughly right with God. And then thirdly, you can deceive others and be quite successful at that all the way to Judgment Day. You can have the appearance of 
but not actually be doing the will of God. The will of God is very precise for your life. It's very narrow. We like options in life. Do this, go here. Flexibility, freedom in America. You go to a grocery store to get a box of cereal if you're a wife and you send your husband, go get some cereal for the kids. And he stands in front of the aisle for 25 minutes. He has no clue what to do because at one Hundred different kinds of cereal are there. We love variety. We love options. We love the freedom to choose. But the problem is the will of God for your life is a very narrow boundary. And you can be successful at deceiving people into thinking that you're doing the will of God all the way to judgment day. You can have the appearance of but not actually be doing the will of God. And judgment is for the purpose of, of, of discerning that. You can say, Lord, Lord. You can be producing evidence like ministry, like casting out demons, says in our text. You can do all that and not be obedient to the narrow boundary of God's will for your life. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So now let me segue to another text I have that we're going to put up, and that is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Not all sin is the same. This scripture is primarily about sin and how it manifests itself in the church. In Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity, not the sin, not the transgression, but the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Not all sin is the same. If it was, that scripture would not say transgression, uh, uh, iniquity, transgression, and sin. It would just say sin. Isn't all sin the same? Isn't all sin disobeying God? Not right? Falling short of the glory of God? Well, apparently not. Apparently not. The fact of the matter is that not all sin is the same. And I want to show you why this scripture is structured the way that it is, and then that scripture in Exodus, and then why Jesus can take, does take, must take the position that he does. The first word that we want to examine is the word sin that's in the text in Exodus. Sin refers to the wrongdoing of the unenlightened. It's what sinners do when they're ignorant of Jesus, ignorant of his commandments and righteousness. It's what we all did before we got saved. It is the wrongdoing of the unenlightened. It is who we are and what we do before we are saved, before we ever call Jesus Lord. And before we were ever born again. We don't know otherwise. 
We may have some sense of right and wrong. Most people do, even though they may be sinners. We don't have a means to change. We don't know about Jesus. We don't know about repenting and receiving him as our Savior. We sin because of who we are. We're born sinners. All have sinned, Romans 2.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. The word means to miss the mark. It means to fall short of God's glory. And that means there's no such thing as a good sinner. Even if you're what the world calls a good person, and you don't hurt people, hit people, kill people, molest people, rob people, lie, you're still a sinner who sins. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul, before he ever called Jesus Lord, described his sin this way. In 1 Timothy 1, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy. Why? Because I did it ignorantly. I didn't know. I did it in unbelief. I had never called Jesus Lord. I didn't believe in him. I rejected him. The problem in the church is not sin. Not that. We want sinners in the church. As many as can come, the most vile, darkened, lost, wounded, hurting sinners, so that in the atmosphere of the church or in the atmosphere of your witness, they can be convicted of their sin, receive Jesus Christ, and then begin to call Him Lord. We need sinners in the church in order to bring them under conviction, in order for them to be saved. Come one, I say, come all. Every sinner is welcome. The second word is the word transgression. This is a different word from what I just described, the sin or the disobedience or the wrongdoing of the unenlightened. This has a different application. The word transgression means to revolt or to trespass. In other words, there is a boundary. And now that you have been enlightened, you have called Jesus Lord, life has been clarified for you through preaching, through The Word of God. Now you know where the boundaries were. What I did before I got saved was on the other side of the boundary where I now must live. Clear boundaries defined by God's Word. Defined by counsel from your brethren. Oh, no, you ought not to do that. Here's what it says in the Bible. And the sinner who's gotten saved says, oh, okay, thank you. Transgression can only be done by a person who has called Jesus Lord. There's a boundary. You know the boundary is there. It is a very clear demarcation. And you make a decision to cross over on the other side of that boundary. You are now a transgressor. You cannot transgress in ignorance. And this is partially who Jesus is talking to in our text. Lord, Lord, but you don't do my will. You cannot transgress in ignorance. It is a willful 
conscious deviation from what you know to be God's will and God's purpose. You know what is wrong. You fully understand what God's Word says, but you do it anyway. It's different than the sin of the sinner. This is the sin of the enlightened, if you will. Those who have called Jesus Lord, you know what the limits are, but you go past. It carries the idea of trespassing. How many of you have ever seen a broken down shack of a house with a fence, and it's all broken down, no windows uh, falling apart, and there's weeds growing up, uh, and there's a fence there, and it says no trespassing. You know where the boundary is. Now, some of you are probably in your boyish curiosity, climbed over the fence, gone into the house and found it full of rats or some old codger with a shotgun waiting for someone to violate his trespassing law. But the point is, you crossed a boundary. It said no trespassing, but you crossed anyway. You did it anyway. It's not the same as the sin of the ignorant or the unenlightened sinner, and it is dealt with differently by God. Because the transgressor knows better. They know what they're doing. In Galatians 2, verse 17, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Not a sinner. Ignorant. Don't know. But I'm in the church. I've called Jesus Lord. And the boundary is there, and I see it. But for whatever reason, through temptation, whatever reason, you cross over the boundary. Romans 5.14 refers to the transgression of Adam because he didn't do it ignorantly. There was a boundary clearly marked. It wasn't done in ignorance, and God gave him that boundary by revelation. And before Adam sinned, God was his Lord. He called him Lord. And then he saw the boundary, crossed over. You know that when you are offended by someone, you should love and forgive that person. But you don't. You get angry. You shun them and cut them off. You are a transgressor. You're not doing that in ignorance. You know you shouldn't go to that guy's house at 2 o'clock in the morning to pay him a visit. But you do it anyway. Lust is driving you. You're not a sinner. Because you're not doing it in ignorance, you've been enlightened, you know the moral boundaries that God has instituted in His Word, you know exactly what it says, you are not a sinner, you are a transgressor when you fornicate, having known where the boundaries are. There's a boundary, and you reason your way on the other side. Now there's a third word, and it's the word iniquity. There's a progression here involved, sin, transgression, and iniquity. Iniquity 
literally means to be perverse. It is a twisting of one's character, someone who lives without law. Their own self-will is what drives their decision, and they're not under the authority of the Holy Spirit or God's Word. Sin or transgression, rather, that occurs. Boundary, you get on the other side of that boundary, you feel conviction, you know you've done wrong, you can't wait for the altar call to grab a brother or sister to come and pray with you, and you get on the other side of the boundary. That's fairly easy to do, if you will, submit to God's convicting presence. But iniquity is this. The boundary is there. As a Christian, you cross over the boundary, and then you refuse to go back, and you justify where you now stand. That results in a perverting and a twisting and a perverse rationalizing of your spirit and of your character. Sin, that is, transgression, and then repeated, and then justified directly in opposition against the knowledge of God. Transgression will become iniquity if you don't repent. You've crossed the line. You feel conviction, but you refuse to get right. You're going to stay where you are and even repeat the offense. And the more you do that, the more twisted you become in your rationalization. And these can become people that I call that are irretrievable. You can have them in front of your desk in the office. And I am pleading and I am begging and I am imploring. It's so clear what they've done and what the end result is going to be. But they don't. Because the process has been enacted and their minds and their hearts have now become twisted. And in the doing of that, you undergo a very radical change. See, the issue is not just what you're doing. The issue is now what you have become and are becoming. You have to adopt another theology. You have to quiet your conscience. And that's hard work. When your conscience is convicting you and you know you should get on the other side and it really would be so easy to do so. But there's something in our nature, our flesh, our carnality, our propensity toward rebellion that refuses it. And so the mind begins to work over time and wrestles with itself until you eventually feel comfortable Don't feel conviction so much anymore. That's who Jesus is talking about in our text. And the Bible says that is going to happen to many. It's another way of saying boundary. Calling Jesus Lord on this side, but I'm crossing the boundary. And then I repeat the sin. And then eventually it's what boundary? I don't see a boundary. That's your boundary, Pastor. That's not God's boundary. And it allows you to come 
to continue in disobedience. That's why the word practice is there. It becomes the habit of life. And this produces a very catastrophic change that I'll call a genetic spiritual change. Because in Exodus, it doesn't say that the sin of the father is what is passed on. It says that the iniquity of the father is what is passed on. These are the enlightened who have transgressed, not repented, erased the boundary. Now it has become iniquity. It has become the defining feature of a person's character and personality. And that has such force now that it moves from one generation to the next. It's not just the fallen nature that we all inherit. This is something far more perverse. You have to ask this question. Are my children struggling because of my iniquity? Someone wrote these words. Sin, when repeated against the knowledge of God, becomes transgression. Which, if it continues long enough without repentance, becomes iniquity. This changes... The spiritual DNA structure of a person's life, the beliefs and the attitudes are changed. And that is what is passed on to the next generation. You may be familiar with the biblical law that the son will not pay for the sins of the father. That's a law defined, written down. The father will pay for his own sin. The father will not pay for the sons for the sins of the son the son will pay for his own sins right that's what the bible teaches it's not true with iniquity because iniquity is not sin in that sense iniquity is far more profound and powerful and pervasive once it gets into a family bloodline the offspring are going to struggle iniquity of the fathers is what is passed on. The son will pay the price for the iniquity of the father. Sin and transgression is what we do. Iniquity is the twisted condition of what we become. Sin, repent. Get clean, get right, change. Even transgression, cross over a boundary, Feel guilt, conviction, God, I'm sorry, and we get over on the right side of the boundary on our knees, repenting and getting right with God. But if you're not very careful, and you stay on the wrong side of the boundary for too long a period of time, it brings about a change. Iniquity is the twisted condition that we become. The change of our character, where we end up doing things we said we'd never do. It creates a coldness, a disinterest, and an unresponsiveness. I'm sure there are people here bound by iniquity. You will not respond to this altar call. Because iniquity has such a grip on your mind, you'll wiggle your way out of this one too. Church people are going to miss the rapture. Not because of sin 
but because of iniquity. In our text, Jesus said, I never knew you. These are enlightened people, once were enlightened people, who are no longer recognizable to Jesus. In Luke 13, Jesus again reinforces this, not to hurt us. God is not trying to hurt anybody here, and I'm not preaching this in anger. This is compassion. This is love. Luke 13, Jesus said, strive to enter in through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord. You see, there's those words again. Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say, I don't know you where you are or where you're from. And then you'll say, but we ate and we drank in your presence. You're taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The problem in the church It's not sin. We can preach conviction for the sinner. The problem in the church is not even transgression. God will help me with sufficient anointing uh, to get transgressors uh, on the right side of all boundaries through every service. We have an opportunity to repent. uh, And probably during the course of the week, uh, we all may step over some boundary at one point or another in life. We can come to church and repent and get our heart right. The real problem in the church is iniquity. It causes you to think you're right when you're not. When you're not. If you think I'm exaggerating, Jesus used the word many. That's his word, not mine. He didn't say a few. And then we have the parable of the five five wise and the five foolish virgins. Is it an accident that Jesus chose Those numbers, is it an accident that half were ready when the bridegroom came and half were not? Bible scholars all agree this is a representative, a representation of the church at the coming of the Lord Jesus. So is he saying there is a likelihood that the many represents half? Is half the church going to miss the rapture? I believe that's the case in some Churches, I would hope that's not the case here based on how we preach. The churches in Revelation, what did Jesus say to three of them? He said, repent or else I'm removing my presence. So what we have to do as we prepare to answer this altar call is we have to recognize the depth to which this affects us. In Isaiah 53, the Bible says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Why that wording? Why not just say, He suffered for our sins? Because transgression... God's trying to bring something across to us in our understanding of the nature of sin. Transgression is a surface wound that can quickly heal and be dealt with. He was wounded. That word wounded is a surface wound. He was wounded for our transgressions. It can be dealt with swiftly if you'll repent. It can be healed. And then it says, he was bruised 
for our iniquity. Those are the internal. How many have ever been in a car accident and you had internal injuries? There may, be a, may have been a surface bruise, but there's no cut. But inside, your spleen has been ruptured. There's been bruising and it's painful. These are the deep wounds that Jesus endured on behalf of those that are in iniquity. It's deep. It's internal. It defines who you are. And it's much longer to bring to a place of healing. The Bible says the iniquity of the wickedness... The iniquity of the wicked will ensnare him. First Samuel 13, First Samuel 15:23 says that stubbornness is as iniquity. One of the manifestations of iniquity is extreme stubbornness. You can't talk someone out of their sinful position. Transgress, you catch yourself. Respond to the conviction that will come. You keep the boundary in place. You get back on the right side and move on with your life. But instead of that, you start accommodating, making excuses. Iniquity is not what you've done, it's what you have become. Consider Judas. The Bible doesn't attach sin to what he did, it attaches the word iniquity. They purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. It says of the Pharisees who bought the field with the 30 pieces of silver that Judas threw back. Balaam was a transgressor who then committed iniquity. Second Peter refers to Balaam. He was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. But you see, Balaam had crossed boundaries and lines. He was ordered not to curse the people of God on behalf of their enemies. And he didn't. In fact, he prophesied good. But what he did do was he counseled the king to send all the young ladies with halter tops and miniskirts into the camp of Israel. And the young men will lust after them, commit adultery or fornication with them, and thereby you will... That's what he counseled them to do. That's iniquity. That's transgression unto iniquity. So let me close very quickly, please. Sin and transgression, easy. And the forgiveness and the fruit of it is immediate. Conviction, repentance, altar, and there are transgressors here. The altar is awaiting you with open arms. And once you get back on the right side of the boundary, the fact that you're on the wrong side of the boundary is forgotten. It's forgiven. It's cast into the depths of the sea. And there are people here that this applies to. Micah 7, you will cast, O Lord, all of our sins into the depths of the sea. To the unbeliever, Matthew 9, Jesus said to the paralytic, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And the psalmist said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and blot out all of my transgressions. That can happen right now, and it can happen Immediately. But transgression is another matter. And the word that's connected with transgression is pardon because it takes time. You took a while to get to the twisted condition that you're in. After repentance, it will take some time to unravel that. And it's going to be a very hard battle that you're going to have to be willing to fight.
And the word that is attached to iniquity is the word pardoned. The word pardon in the Bible is associated with sin, sometimes, but three times more often with the word iniquity. Numbers 14, 19, pardon my iniquity. Pardon the iniquity, rather, of this people, I pray, according to your mercy. Psalms 25:11. for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. You receive a pardon when you demonstrate that you're going to change. And you start down the road of change and transformation. It's kind of like how the law works. If you commit a minor infraction, the judge may slap your hand. Don't let me find you in this courtroom again. But you go and you do it again. Now you're a transgressor. Now the judge has given a boundary. Now you've transgressed, and he may fine you. He may put you on probation, or he may even commit you to jail. But then you end up, after having been released or paid your fine or fulfilled the demands of, uh, of um, probation or whatever it is, you end up in front of the judge again. Now you're hardened. Now you're a rebel. Now you're lipping off to the judge. And he throws you in jail in hopes that you'll repent, change, get your heart right. And then there comes a time when it gets close to your release where they're going to put you in a halfway house. You're on your way out, but they're not quite sure about you yet. Put you in a halfway house, give you a little bit of freedom, see if you can behave yourself. I don't know what the percentage rate is, but a good number of those who go in a halfway house end up right back in prison because they can't behave themselves. The iniquity doesn't depart. But they put you there to see if you're serious about change, and then eventually they pardon you. You're free. You go. That's kind of like the process. But you're going to have to acknowledge the reality of that at work in your life, and very few people ever will. Isaiah 40, verse 2, Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. It can come to an end, but you're going to have to recognize it and begin to walk down that road unto freedom. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Second Timothy, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ, not every sinner, every unbeliever, those who don't know Jesus, but let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So it's possible to have called him Lord and end up in this condition where Jesus said, don't know who you are. I want every head bowed and every eye closed. There is hope, hope for the sinner, hope for the transgressor, Hope for the one who is bound by iniquity. The hope of forgiveness, the hope of freedom and liberty, and the anticipation of judgment. These people in the text that we read from Matthew have such a twisted view of life, they think judgment day is going to be fine. But they are transgressors who have remained on the wrong side. They have developed their own theology. They can't be corrected. They can't receive counsel. They no longer hear God's word or feel conviction for the very wrong road they're on. And they're headed for a cliff. 
And it's going to be a shocking day for some. But I called you Lord, but I was in ministry. But I didn't think. Yeah, you didn't think, but you knew. Your rebellion has gotten the better of your faculties. So ponder and consider for a moment while I make an appeal for those who may be here now. You might be visiting our church. This may be one of your first occasions in coming. But you're not right with God. You've never received Jesus as your Savior and repented of your sins. But hope tonight, today, this morning, in Jesus Christ, who loves you, gave his life for you, rose from the dead so that you can have everlasting life. Be forgiven of your sin and know what it is to have real joy, real purpose, and real meaning in your life. God is talking to you. I remember the first day I went to church, I blew it off. I went out unsaved. I got saved four days later in my pastor's living room. You can do that. But you can also choose Christ. You don't have to live the way you're living. You don't have to be the person you are. You don't. You can know joy. You say, well, this is just the way I am. You don't have to be that way. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. Whosoever is in Christ is a new creation, the Bible says. The change that I talked about uh, is glorious and wonderful. A, a sinner saved by the grace of God and then begins a lifetime of becoming more like Jesus. Day by day by day by day by day. That can be your story. That can be your testimony. You don't need to live in guilt and fear and shame and anger and hate and contention with your fellow man. But you're going to have to be honest about the condition of your heart. I am a sinner. I am wrong. I'm going to quit blaming others and making excuses and take responsibility for the person that I am because now I know I can choose otherwise. I can choose Christ. I can choose forgiveness. I can choose love. And if you're ready to do that, and it is as simple as that, I want to pray for you and I want to help you and I want to believe God to work a miracle in your life. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. I'm sorry for my sin. And I want to receive him as my Savior. If that's your desire, please let me pray for you. And in order to do that, while every head is bowed, I need you just to lift your hand up very quickly. Lift your hand right up. God bless you. I see that. Thank you, my brother. Lift your hand right up all over this building. Put it right back down. God bless you. I see that, young man. Amen. I see that hand. Thank you very much. I see that, sister. Thank you. God bless you. Anyone else? Lift your hand right up all over this building. Amen. I saw that. Yes, young man. Thank you. Anyone else? Lift your hand right up. I need Jesus. I don't want to live another day risking eternity in hell. And that's what you're doing. Every day you live without Christ is a huge gamble. Lift your hand right up. I want you to put it down if you have it raised. I want you to put your hand down, son. Thank you. You haven't raised your hand yet, but you need Jesus. I want you to lift it. Maybe your backslid. Maybe the very thing I preached. Transgression. That's where it began. You transgressed. And maybe a few times you got back on the other side, but you kept going back. Got back on the other side. 
You do that often enough, you're going to start lingering on the wrong side for too long. That's how sexual immorality works. Pornography habits, rebellion. It's in your nature. Hasn't been dealt with, and so you keep transgressing. The devil's able to lure you over to the other side of a known boundary. And then you feel conviction, you repent, you get back on the other side, but you go back and you come back and you go back, and then pretty soon you start lingering too long. And you lose touch with God is what happens. You can get mad at the preacher. You can get mad at God. You can get mad at life. You can blame others. But it's you. And the poor decisions and the careless living. We should be seriously living for God, not carelessly. We should be very distinct in our obedience. Not careless and sloppy. Not hoping what I'm doing is okay. You're backslidden. You're not right with God. The question is, can you see it? Is there enough conviction here? To get the backslider who's deceived about their condition to see their backslidden condition. You've created your own theology. You're living a life that's pleasing to you and you've imposed that on God. And you need to use this altar to rededicate your life to Christ. Would you lift your hand right now? Amen. Amen. Others, lift your hand right now. If you've lifted your hand, God bless you. God bless you. Others are in the throes of needing to make that decision. If you raise your hand, I want you to get out of your seat right now. And we want to pray with you. Come on. There's a sister way over on my right that needs someone to pray with her. There's two young men over here. I want you to come. Find a place to pray, brother. Come on. Amen. Someone's going to pray with you and help you. God bless you guys over there. Thank you for coming. God bless you. Amen. Hallelujah. God is good. Thank you, Jesus. And of course, the transgressor, you can transgress without backsliding. I don't know when the moment of backsliding occurs, and neither do you. But I can tell you that you stay on the wrong side of that boundary long enough, and you're going to lose touch with God. The Bible says that God will not always strive with man. Why does God have to strive with man? Because we're transgressors. Wrong side of the boundary for far too long. But then, of course, the real challenge today is iniquity. Have you been on the wrong side of the boundary that your character is so twisted you justify remaining on the wrong side of a known boundary? And you may not even recognize your iniquity has advanced to the point you don't even see a boundary. You don't even feel conviction anymore. All transgression and iniquity should bring us to our knees crying out to God. Because, as I said, this is a countdown to judgment. If we are serious about life and death, about the Word of God and prophecy, about the imminent return of Jesus Christ and the end of the age and the coming and certain judgment. We can't afford to live carelessly. And Jesus said, many who call him Lord in the last days are going to be living very carelessly.
Living the way I'm suggesting you live is the way to experience the greatest level of joy. People bound by iniquity are miserable because they're wrestling and fighting and contending and twisted the whole time they're living. There's no joy. I have peace. I have joy. I have victory. The way to experience the greatest measure of blessing from God is to live at the very highest level of commitment and obedience. And it's what Jesus said. Those who do the will of my Father in heaven is like building your house on a solid rock, and so there's benefits to that. Those who live in disobedience are the transgressors And their life is built on sand and a collapse is sure to come. You may be standing now. You know, you can build a house on sand and it'll look like a house on a rock because you can't see the foundation upon which it is built. So it looks the same and you may be getting away with it for now. But I prophesy a collapse. It's going to happen if you're not living on the very narrow boundaries of God's will. This altar is a place to repent of our sin, repent of our transgression and get on the right side of the boundary and repent of our iniquity and work our way back to being pardoned. You'll be forgiven immediately. The change comes slower over time than those who commit sin or transgression. And you're going to have to be willing to hang in there long enough until breakthrough comes. What I tell backsliders sometimes, look, You've got to live by what you know, not by what you feel. Because you're not going to feel a whole lot right away. You've, you've got calluses. You've warped your spirit through your sin. You've got to do what you know to do. And eventually the old joy and victory and dominion will come. Let's all stand. I think we should all stand. And we should all come to this altar. We're not going to sing right now. In fact, you don't have to play the piano. Anyone and everyone should pray at this altar. In brokenness, in surrender, in repentance, oh God, cry out to God. That's what this altar is for. Better to cry out to Him now than being than be crying out when you're rejected on Judgment Day. Oh God, this sermon is not to instill fear for fear's sake, but a godly kind of fear, born of love. And an altar like this should be filled with brokenness, surrender, and repentance. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me the opportunity to repent of my transgression and iniquity. Thank you for the opportunity as a sinner to repent of my sin that I committed in my ignorance. I didn't know, Lord. But I know now, and I want to be right with God in Jesus' name. And I want to use this life... uh, to prepare for that great day of judgment when I stand before you, uh, when those words can be spoken, well done, good and faithful servant, uh, to those that are as thoroughly right with God as they can be. I want to be that person, oh God. I don't want to spend my time on earth wrestling with your will, rejecting your will, being stubborn and rebellious and disobedient, being pulled on the wrong side of the boundaries, uh, and then back and forth and back and forth until I remain too long on the wrong side uh, and iniquity lays hold of my life. Oh, God, pour out grace over this altar. Uh, Pour out your love over this altar. Uh, Pour out your 
mercy uh, over this altar. Let every sinner and transgressor uh, be forgiven and shown mercy. Uh, let everyone who has committed iniquity, O oh God, be forgiven. Uh, and let the day of their pardon come very soon uh, as they make a definitive decision, Lord, uh, to get back on the right side of the boundary uh, and then walk uh, getting closer to Jesus day by day, O oh God. Oh, my God, I give you praise. I give you glory. I honor you, O Lord, in the name of Jesus. Oh, God, I thank you for the great grace that is available to us that changes our hearts, O God. Remember, if it's iniquity, you've changed. You're not the same person. You can't use the same rationale and the same justifications. You've got to get back to your spiritual ground zero as a spiritual infant before God in repentance and cry out, O God, Oh, my God, my God, help me, change me, forgive me, pardon me, break the curse of iniquity in my life, O oh Lord, the deception of iniquity. Let's all stand, and I want to pray as we are going to dismiss in a few moments. I prayed, O oh God, give me special anointing to minister this sermon with love. My objective is not fear. My objective is love. Thank God for the opportunity to get thoroughly right. Thank God that he caught us in our iniquity and convicted us and we repented. Thank God he brought his love to me when I had transgressed and crossed the boundary. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your mercy and your love. You're trying to prepare me for the day when I stand before you. That's what this is about. God's love. Not wanting to reject any. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Pray this prayer, oh my God. I understand the difference now between sin, transgression, and iniquity. I recognize clearly. Thank you for enlightening me. Because in ignorance I sinned. In disobedience I transgressed. And in rebellion I practiced iniquity. And I know that I can recover. I know I can be forgiven. And I can be pardoned. And Lord, I'm taking seriously. The day is coming. It's countdown to judgment. From the moment I was born. I know I have an appointment to stand before God. That will determine eternity for my life. Oh God, I want to be as thoroughly right with you as I can be. Therefore, I reject and I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge and reject all transgression. And I acknowledge my iniquity. Yes, iniquity is present. And Lord, I confess it. I have changed. Not for the better, but for the worse. Lord, unchange me. I repent. I am sorry. And help me to work my way to the place where I once was before iniquity began to twist my personality and character. I love you above all else. I want to live my life to please you. Therefore, whatever it takes to obey you, I will do, O God. Give me a tender heart, a heart of flesh. Take out the heart of stone. As the clay is on the potter's wheel, let my life be in your hands. 
tender and soft so that you can shape me after your will. For I want to do your will. And I commit myself to that end. In Jesus' name I pray. Let's give God glory. Hallelujah. Lord, let your cleansing power, let your cleansing anointing, let your grace and your love prevail and abound, O God, over every life. Oh, God, open the windows of heaven, for we are a desperate people, and we need you, O oh Lord. Oh, For yea, the Lord delights in repentance, saith God. It is joy to my ears when the sounds of repentance come forth into the portals of heaven, saith God. And I will delight your soul, only come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will recover you from all sin and transgression and iniquity, and I will be the delight of your soul, and your heart and joy will be restored, and the peace of God will overcome and overwhelm your life, saith the Lord. Only come unto me and acknowledge your need before me, saith God, and let the sounds of repentance come forth, saith the Lord. And I will give you the delight of your heart, and I will transform you, and I will prosper you, and I will change you, and I will say to you on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Only this day my children learn to delight only in my will, saith God, and I will take pleasure in you, saith the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We took a little longer to minister. I promise a shorter sermon tonight, not just for shorter sermon's sake, but I want to really challenge you. The sermon is called, Tell Someone About Jesus. From Mark chapter 5, you're going to, I think, love the sermon. But I want you to take time today to do that. Call someone, a backslider, someone you've been working with, a boss, a colleague, someone at work. Invite them to church tonight. And my faith is telling me that whoever comes tonight that is unsaved or backslidden is going to repent. You bring five, we'll have five at the altar. You bring ten or twenty, there'll be that many at the altar. So make that effort. We're going to gather together tonight, and I believe God's going to do great things. Amen. Our heads are bowed. We're going to dismiss uh, in prayer, and I am going to uh, ask if Jeshua will close the service in prayer and thank God for speaking to our hearts here today. You go rejoicing. 
You make this sermon a feature of your prayer life. It's going to be available for free to anyone who wants a copy of it on a DVD or whatever form we use over there in the bookstore. And it might do you well to listen to it from time to time in the countdown to judgment. Just to keep your heart right. How many know we need conviction? And how many know feeling conviction is an extension of God's love for you? And that's how we're made thoroughly right. Amen. Our heads are bowed. Jeshua's praying. Amen. God bless you. Go rejoice.